to our first urban collaborative podcast. We are here to listen to stories and personal experiences of people in our community, their successes, how they got there, and advice they might share with others who are facing some of the same challenges and opportunities they may have had. Each of our podcast speakers will connect us to the theme of the month that we are looking to explore with you all, our urban collaborative members. I'm Richika Chopra, host of this series that we call CollabCast, a resource from the Urban Collaborative, supporting over 100 districts across the country to build equitable and inclusive practices. During the month, we will also have for you, our members, access to a scheduled Zoom meeting around the theme and additional related resources shared on our website. These topics concern issues that you have told us you are grappling with and want to learn more about. So let's get started. We are thrilled to start off our series by exploring stories around an extremely important topic, developing family and community partnerships with our schools and school districts. To learn about this topic, we will engage in a conversation between Murenike Kiwa Onayu and Dr. Bill Henderson. Murenike Kiwa Onayu is a global advocate, educator, disabled person of color, non-binary woman and parent in a neurodiverse multicultural, twice exceptional, serodifferent, biological and adoptive family. A prolific writer and social scientist, activist, whose work focuses on intersectional justice, meaningful community involvement, human rights and inclusion. Welcome, Marena Kay. Bill Henderson, after teaching and having been an assistant principal, was appointed principal of the O'Hearn Elementary School in Boston in, in, in 1989 with a mandate to integrate students with significant disabilities. The school gained widespread recognition for inclusion, academic progress, arts and family involvement, and has helped shape inclusive practices for the country. Upon his retirement in 2009, the O'Hearn was renamed the Dr. William W. Henderson Inclusion School, and it now serves students in two campuses from early childhood through grade 12. Bill has facilitated efforts to promote inclusion at individual schools as well as across districts. Bill's book, The Blind Advantage from Harvard Education Press, describes the joys and challenges of including students with a wide range of abilities. Welcome, Bill, to CollabCast. Our conversation will be framed around four questions that we have shared with them, but really we are here to learn and hear their story. Marenike, let's start with you saying hello to our listeners and sharing some of your personal experiences on how you and your family built a community around you and your children. Thank you, and I'm so excited to be here on CollabCast um, and to speak with you and with Dr. Bill about this topic. So for my family, um, we've found that um, school has been a great resource for us, but so have other community organizations. And we've found different ways to build community um, by um, sharing resources, for example, with our school. Um, you know, there are newsletters that go out and there are there is like a, a parent portal and, um, you know, and so forth. And so sometimes there's updates that, that are shared on the announcements that are emailed out to parents or information that is given. And so um, you've tried to kind of share things to keep those lists, um, you know, current and of, of relevant information. Uh, we've also um, involved ourselves in like some activities on campus. Sometimes one may not be the, be able to do it for various reasons due to time or, or resources. But if you share a community resource, often there's a lot of um, ways that 
these schools can collaborate with different organizations. They often want to make these partnerships, but just might not know the community in the way that you do as someone who lives there or um, as someone who's you know obtaining services. So uh, making these introductions um, are helpful. And um, also just providing feedback and support is important too. Um, so there are different things like, um, for example, one of my children's schools um, had a brought in someone to do um, gymnastics, and um, there were some of the parents um, of my two youngest children are on the autism spectrum, as am I. And I remember um, a few of us kind of wishing that our children who were in primary preschool for children with disabilities could also engage in the um, gymnastics, but they, you know that was offered after school, but they couldn't. And so we kind of talked amongst ourselves and we approached, um, shared the, our thoughts with the teacher who spoke with the um, provider who then started to provide once a week an hour of um, gymnastics to our children before the bell rang. So like what would have been their, their kind of last hour of the day, um, this was a specialized time for them um, before the rest of the children came that were bigger and older that was inclusive. And so this sometimes just knowing that something that's being offered is helpful, but you wish that you had more of it or it could be changed, you know, or giving feedback on ideas or thoughts, um, you know, really just sharing your voice and perspective can be really important. Um, often schools want to build and make these connections, but they can't do it alone. Thanks so much, Marenike. Sharing your voice is definitely a place where all of us want to be so that we can we can bring our perspectives to the table. And I know that Bill, um, in your school, that that is, that is definitely a place where you all went. So, uh, so Dr. Henderson, for uh, Bill, can you please also, when introducing yourself, share how and why community was so key in building the Henderson Inclusion School and how you brought that voice of your family and community into, into the conversation? Greetings. Family leaders were the catalyst for starting inclusion in the Boston Public Schools. Up until 1989, there was not one school in the entire city where students with intellectual or developmental disabilities could learn with their peers. Parents organized, they lobbied the school committee, the city council and the mayor and the school department reluctantly said, okay, we'll start inclusion in the fall of 1989 at the O'Hearn School. Right from the outset, parent leaders were key in the development of our school. Their representatives served on our governing board and they were involved in setting budgetary and programmatic priorities, as well as in the selection of new staff. Right from the beginning, they helped us develop an inclusive mission statement where we celebrated the fact that our school was gonna serve students from diverse ethnic, racial, linguistic, and ability backgrounds. And that we were committed to helping every student learn and succeed together at the highest possible level. The parents were also instrumental in encouraging us to involve more families in the development of our school. And we collaborated with a nonprofit, the Institute of Responsive Education at Boston University and wrote a grant which allowed us to hire a part-time organizer. And this person trained 30 parent leaders who were committed to providing outreach to other families. 
they visited the homes of many students. They helped provide supports. They identified families that needed extra encouragement for their involvement. And they gave us much feedback as to what parents felt was important for helping their children learn and succeed at higher levels. So all the way through our school's history, parents enhanced the progress of our school and impacted the teaching and learning that occurred. Thank you, Bill. Um, from what you shared, uh, the pieces around parents um, organizing together, parents being part of the governing body, parents being part of creating an inclusive vision of the school, uh, bringing in organizations uh, from the outside groups to reach more families because if, uh, because if the capacity was not internal to be able to bring more families in, bringing in more people into that conversation so that they can help with that. Um, can you go through and just describe in detail one or two of those successes that you encountered? You shared so many, but can you share one or two success that you encountered by building that connection between school and families a little bit more in detail? Sure. Um... In our early years, our test scores in both English language arts and math were quite low. And although this was primarily the responsibility of our staff to improve this situation, parents wanted and we knew that we needed their help. So for example, with reading, doing a needs analysis, we found that many of our children were not reading regularly at home, nor were they being read to by their families. So with parent support, we wrote grants, a national grant, Reading is Fundamental, Read Boston, connection with local libraries. We brought lots of books into our school and to homes. Um, we, these books were in different languages and for kids with print disabilities, some of them are audio books um, and uh, digital books. And for families that needed additional supports, our parent leaders that were trained volunteers would connect with families and provide suggestions about what they could do to help their children organize things around dinner time and getting ready for bed and when would be appropriate and how to read. And it dramatically increased the participation of students and who were reading and being read to. And we believe this impacted our reading scores. In math, we at one point adopted a new curriculum Initially, we sent home a, a, a bulletin about it, and, but parents said, no, no, we, we need some more information about this. It's, we don't want a lecture. So we had some of our teachers volunteer to do classroom exhibitions, inviting families to come in to see what the new math was like. Uh, with parent support, we organized a family math night. Uh, this happened every year, and we had games and fun activities showing some of the new problem-solving approaches uh, to mathematics. But also our parents recognized that our six-hour school day was not sufficient to meet the needs, academic and social-emotional needs of our children. So they collaborated with staff. Uh, we wrote grants to uh, Massachusetts, to Boston, to nonprofits, to agencies, and we acquired the funds to provide the infrastructure for an after-school program, which had a range of activities. Um, for example, with reading, uh, for first and second graders who are reading below grade level, we connected with the Jewish Literacy Coalition 
And every student had a tutor who would come and read one day a week after school um, with the child. And that, that was very powerful. We also had university students and other volunteers and stipends for teachers to have uh, reading groups with our third, fourth, and fifth graders to help them. And around before the test time in math, we did some additional math enrichment because the school day was not sufficient. Social emotional learning was also critical. And I admit that when we started inclusion, we had no idea what we were gonna do. Our deputy superintendent said, I want you to connect with this organization, Very Special Arts. We had some visiting artists come in. Um, the kids loved it. The teacher said, we want more of this. And the parents say, we wanna see what you're doing. So to our governing board, we made a commitment that we wanted to do a lot more performing arts, bringing together music, dance, movement, drama, and the visual arts and scenery and costumes. And every year we had some major productions which hundreds and hundreds of students participating um, and with a lot of support both during the school day and after school to make these happen. And many family members uh, with connections with artists and arts organizations helped us out. And these activities and, and the performing arts were critical for our school. They really enhanced uh, student, the quality of student interactions, student engagement, their motivation, their self-esteem and pride, uh, their teamwork, and impacted also their academic performance. Again, this is something that the staff could not do alone. We needed the support of families and we needed the support of community agencies for both our academics and our social emotional um, priorities. Wow, Bill, that's a, that's a long list of things that you all did together, but I think speaks to that component of working collaboratively with families and having them uh, be partners in this. You talked about classroom exhibitions, fun nights, after-school activities, grants, university students coming in, stipends for teachers, visiting artists. But I think the piece that really st um, stood out for me was the school day not being sufficient, right? And thinking outside of um, outside of just that six hours, just think about how students and families can stay engaged in school and learning. Maranike, I know that um, as, as a parent, um, that 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 must have rung true for you. Um, so can you share some of um, a detail of one or two successes that you encountered with your school with some of the help that your children may have received in the academic and social emotional growth, as well as anything that you feel might have led to their success. Yes, and really I was just kind of like inwardly cheering at the things that um, were shared because those are some, uh, several of those things that were mentioned are have been some of the things that have been such a lifeline um, for my family. So um, when you think about for various reasons, some there's, I, I believe, um, only the, depending on whose data you're reading, only about a quarter to 33% of um, youth with disabilities have, have any extracurricular activities outside of school and therapies. So they might have occupational therapy, speech therapy, tutoring, school, but when are they just being a kid? When are they just having fun? Um, sometimes there just isn't the resources for that. Um, or, and so these opportunities, these things like having, being able to be, to feel like you're bonding and connecting with your child, but you're also helping them to grow academically and to grow as a person. 
having these types of options are really nice and having, you know, be something it's a lot, I think for families where we've got so much going on and it's to feel that something has already been vetted already, that someone has already done the legwork that the schools have done, you know, the background checks and the verifications and the memorandum of understanding um, to make these things more accessible to you. Um, my children have done, you know, fine arts and martial arts and um, other types of programs with collaborative groups. Um, we've had, I remember in particular writers in schools that would come in, um, the, the writer in school program that would come into the, embedded into the English classes and then your child could do some optional extracurricular things on their own as well. And I remember that um, they sent us information about a community center over the summer where there could be some optional um, writing um, programs and um, the children were involved in writing, you know, poetry and things of that nature and had it um, kind of displayed publicly somewhere. Those types of things are so important. It really can help you develop and grow. Um, and I think that, you know, nobody can do it all alone. Like schools can't do it all alone. These organizations can't do it all alone. Families can't do it all alone. We need one another. And so feeling like there's a team effort, feeling like there's more people who have eyes on your child, who care about their development, like those types of things are just, you know, those are some of the most cherished memories I have as a mom. Thank you, Marenike. You're right. It's, it is a team effort. And that conversation that you had around vetting of organizations, it's so powerful because, you know, there's so many places that parents, you can get resource lists, you can get lists of organizations that can do outside work, but being able to be sure that the organization is something that is powerful and is, and is in line with what you want to have for your children and the schools assisting with that is key. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that, that you brought that up. Can you, um, Miranike, in your conversation, share a little bit more about uh, what can, what do you think, what can school districts do to build their practices of engaging families and building co uh, communities around our children, just like your family has been able to access that and, and from Bill's conversation, some of his uh, families that attend, uh, attend their school. So what, what do you, what do you, what can you give as an advice, piece of advice, and what do you think schools, uh, school districts can do to help this along? Well, first I'm gonna give a few practical suggestions and then I'll give some that are a little more theoretical. So I think we always need to know well, what can you actually do? Well, here's one thing you can do. Whoever is the person that is over outreach or community partnerships or whatever it is, um, have someone do some type of audit of your materials. Are those, are the, the, what you're handing out, is it up to date? Or are there a bunch of dead URLs and old emails? You know, or do these organizations still offer what you're suggesting that they are? Was that only a grant and that no longer exists? Make sure, make sure that what you're offering is, is current and up to date and is relevant. Um, that's important. Um, make sure people have a way to provide um, information and feedback and to ask questions and make sure that you make things accessible and share them more than one way. Like, you know, you children come home with so many pieces of paper. So that may not be the best way to send something, something, you know, that might be one way, but maybe is there a, 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 an email list group or a, a, you know, a newsletter, or is there some other way that you can engage social media? Is there some other way that you can get this information out to families? Are you making it accessible in different languages? Um, and are you making it accessible in plain language and a variety of different types of things for different ages? Um, things that the siblings can be involved in as well. Are you offering childcare when you have an event? Even if it's just, you know, some high school volunteers who need community service hours who've been background checked, 
who are playing games with the children in a particular area so that uh, if they're a younger sibling so that the parent can participate are you offering things on the weekends um you know or uh, you know or when you know a, a variety of different ways so that people can be involved and are you um also with the mentality that i think that you have like i think sometimes people need to understand that parents families we're the experts of you know in one area and educators are the experts in another area and as someone who wears both hats i understand that sometimes it can be a bit confusing but we shouldn't presume that we know what families need or we know what's best and have we should have an attitude of humility and openness when we engage with families people can feel when they're being patronized or when you have low expectations of them. Um, and also, you know, be creative and allow for, um, you know, multiple ways of involvement. Like there might be a parent working two jobs and they can't come to PTA meetings, but maybe they still want to contribute in some other way. Maybe they're going to give them some laminate to cut out, you know, or give them, let them be the person who sends out the birthday wishes, you know, to, or, you know, monthly or, or what have you like, don't, you know, or maybe grandma can come because the parents cannot. So just, I think that just try to think outside the box um, and make your school an engaging place for families to be able and organizations to be able to connect with you don't make your websites accessible make make sure there's a place where people can contact someone if they need to um have a you know more of a window you know open transparent window than a wall um, type of approach thank you Marenike. that is a lot that that uh that and you're right all of these things are are practical things as well as um, things that will help districts and schools build that community that you both have spoken about. Um, I love what you talked about is as far as don't presume about the mentality, don't presume about what a family needs and have have humility. Um, uh, so thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Bill, um, advice, uh, not uh, so much only advice, but what do you think schools can do to build their practices, school districts to uh, build their practices of engaging families and building communities around our children? I know that Marenike shared quite a bit, uh, but what can you add to that, please? Well, I do believe it is helpful when district and city leaders prioritize family and community involvement. I remember a late mayor of Boston, Mayor Thomas Menino, and he had an annual principal of the day program where he invited leaders from business, uh, nonprofits, universities, health organizations, to come into schools and follow a principal for four hours and then meet with the mayor later in the day and talk about how they can provide partnerships and support. So I remember uh, one year we had a leading partner from a law firm. We had the owner of the Boston Celtics another year, a dean from Leslie University and the uh, CEO of a construction company. And all of these um, all of these uh, happenings of, of those folks coming to our school provided some partnerships and some opportunities for our school. I also think it is critical for districts to prioritize family involvement, and it is reasonable for uh, districts to request that schools with their leadership team, with parent and staff representatives, write their plan, their goals for family involvement for that year. And ultimately, I think principals should be held accountable for um, engaging families, involving families, and fulfilling the goals and objectives of their plans. I do think it is very helpful when districts 
can offer resources uh, for schools. And already mentioned, you know, sometimes just having money for childcare, for food, for transportation, um, to bring in some guest speakers, to have some programs. I know in Boston, we have something called the Private Industry Council, uh, which is a connection with businesses. And clearly for kids with disabilities, when they turn 14, and we want them to look at transitioning to the community, it's really important to identify uh, places where students can get experience out in the community. And schools can't do this alone. So we do rely on our districts and agencies to help with this. I think once this happens, the district can also support us by listing some of the best partnerships and the best practices for family involvement that are occurring in a district, and then highlighting and celebrating some of those best practices in the local media, through the social media, um, through newsletters, to get the good news out about what's happening with uh, family and community engagement. And the district and the city can help with that effort. Uh, Bill, I think the piece that you said about the prioritizing prioritizing family engagement as schools and as districts thinking about that. Schools cannot do this alone. And I heard Murenike say families can't do this alone, right? So we, none of us are able to do this kind of work without each other. Um, and, and thinking about um, this team effort that needs to happen and how do you make that happen? Um, a lot of good ideas um, that you both shared and Bill, when you mentioned about get the good news out. So once you start thinking about this as districts and schools, get the good news out, think about how you might share this with other constituents so that you can build on that great work that you might have started as schools and school districts. Um, Thank you, Bill and Marenike. Uh, but before we leave on this particular topic, I do want to ask both of you to also share. And, and Bill, if you want to start with that one piece of advice you have always wanted to share with educators. Well, I'll give a few quick things. I, I do believe it's key yeah. to have strong parent and staff leadership on your governing board because there are going to be lots of priorities, lots of needs, lots of concerns. And schools can't do everything. You have to prioritize and you have to focus. And so any idea that a staff person or a parent brought to us, we would discuss in the leadership team and then we would select some of them, but we could never do all of them. And so that was really important. And then being considerate of family members and staff members when there was an evening meeting or an afternoon meeting, working hard to provide some refreshments and something as light as pizza. And sometimes we had uh, lasagna dinners and around the Asian New Year, some Vietnamese food, you know, try and have some food available, have some childcare, make the meetings, we've heard the word engaging, not boring, uh, focusing on children and what they're doing. So if you're learning about <clears throat> a new writing program, have the students share some of that writing, not just give a lecture about it. Um, if you're talking about what you're doing in science, have the kids showing some of the experiments that they're doing. Um, I think parents of all backgrounds yearn to see their children being successful and schools need to figure out with families how best and uh, to show that. I do wanna also offer some advice about that we learned on our governing board that we would discuss <clears throat> all kinds of 
programs and policies, but not talk about individuals. So for example, if there were concerns about improving the quality of reading at the primary grades, we would talk about steps we would take, but we would not talk about individual first or second grade teachers. If there was interest in improving the quality of interactions in the cafeteria at recess, we would talk about some of the strategies that we have for that, but not individual cafeteria staff. If um, folks want to know what, how we were dealing with bullying instances, we would talk about those policies and practices, but not individual students who perhaps might be bullying. And even, although this was very rare, we also had to have conversations about what were the procedures for dealing with families who were not civil, who were sometimes would be disrupting in ways of teaching and learning. And so that was a conversation we had, but not about individual families. Um, again, those <clears throat> negatives were the exception. And that's why I'm gonna end my remarks by saying, what is critical is getting the good news out about what's happening in inclusion, what's happening in our urban schools. We know that the media is gonna be fixated on problems, on serious incidents, and they don't often come to see the steps that we take to deal with those situations. So we have to be uh, much more conscientious and strategic about through newsletters, through social media, through local media, uh, from partnering with people in the community and with the connections that our parents have to show what's happening in kindergarten classrooms and middle school and high school science classes on sports teams and after school inclusive special Olympics uh, with performing arts, whatever it is, we have to do a better job of sharing the good stories about what's happening in our schools and the great news about inclusion. Absolutely. Wow. I just, I'm just listening and nodding my head like all over the place because that's so, it, it aligns so well with what I was going to share really um, in terms of like, you know, tell your story and tell it right. Like, you know, is what I was going to give, what advice I was going to give, because I think that, you know, kind of like what was shared earlier, um, what the value of a thing is so much more than just the quantitative aspect, the test scores, um, you know, or the number of students who are on free or reduced lunch or the number of students who are, um, you know, English is not their first language. All of the things that people measure things upon, those are, those are one aspect of a school. What wins do you have? Like what, do you have a community garden that families love? Do you have some kind of, you know, do you host, um, I don't know, a community college event on, you know, once a month for, you know, adult literacy? Or do you, is there a painting project? Is there a really cool, um, you know, um, extracurricular club that your students are doing? There should be always something that there's so much negativity and we need to celebrate the positives. Everyone wants to feel proud about the school that your child goes to um, and that, and, and give awards to people who make not just honor roll and perfect attendance, because there are a lot of students who can't have perfect attendance because of health reasons. There's a lot of students who will never be on honor roll. Um, and then, and, and behavior is great, but that's just one thing. So find things to celebrate students with. That's where some of these best practices that um, Dr. Bill was mentioning um, and partnering with other organizations can take, you know, kind of the, 
can, can help. You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just need to see what wheels are out there and, you know, and kind of, you know, see which wheels can fit our car. Um, and it's, and you can start small. There can be seed money. There can be, you know, small grants and partnerships. You know, you can start somewhere and you don't know where that will take you. And so I really feel like those things are important. It's just for us to build things that are going to last and are sustainable and not that are going to, that are going to go away when teacher A gets promoted to administration and leaves. You know, these need to be things, these to be practices and concepts that will last. And a lot of the way we can do that is by, you know, adopting um, the practice of engaged pedagogy, you know, in terms of understanding that the this is a, a team effort of learning, that everyone has something to learn, the students bring something, you know, a value, the parents bring something of value, that the school has something of value, and that we're creating shared learning together. And um, that we're, you know, leading with vulnerability and kindness, and we're um, honoring what people bring to the table, and don't see learning as something that just happens only in an academic manner. Um, and that not, doesn't just go for what we're teaching our students, but also for the events. You know, as Dr. Bill mentioned, no one wants to go to another boring lecture and eat another slice of dry pizza. <laughs> you know, like let's have some creativity, let's have some fun, let's have things that are interactive. Um, and you don't have to do it all. Again, you know, rely upon resources that are out there in the community if you can bring them in, you know, but these things are, are so important, like, you know, the just embracing public intellectualism and understanding that, you know, a shared learning community and enjoying and, and enjoyment and passion of learning and growing for its own sake um, it is, is something that we can all gain from. It's something that we can all benefit from. And it's something that I really just strive um, for school districts to embrace um, and to help develop, help develop within their personnel, within their faculty and staff. Thank you, Bill and Marenike. Um, so uh, school districts and school personnel who are listening, um, uh, if you don't get anything out of this conversation, the two things that I got from Bill and Marenike is get the good news out and tell your story um, and tell it and tell it well, because we have so much to share. And I'm hoping that having Bill and Marenike share and for, for us as listeners that we are able to get um, some amazing strategies that we can use to be able to build our practices of engagement between our families, community, and schools. Thank you, Marenike and Bill, for taking the time to share. We know that your stories, your challenges, and successes will collect, <clears throat> will connect with many others. We will share resources and ways to connect with Marenike and Bill on the Urban Collaborative website in our, and in our communication to our members. We look forward to hearing from you all, our listeners, on how Maranike and Bill's experiences connected with you. They shared a, they shared a lot. Let us know how this helped. Um, as a reminder, for further solutions to help develop our practices in this area, we will hold a follow-up Zoom meeting on March 14. Dwayne Millard, who runs the literacy initiatives within the family and community engagement at Scholastic, will discuss with Christian Eder from the Fayette County Public Schools, whom he partners with, how their partnership led to enhanced literacy practices in their schools. We hope to see you there. We definitely hope to see you at our spring member meeting, April 26 to 28, where we are focused on anti-racist practices with Madison and Sun Prairie school districts. If you have not yet registered, do it today. Before closing our collabcast for today, we want to thank Keith Jones of Crip Hop for providing the music. His information is on our website. Thank you.